I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. Audio-Technica's support has allowed this podcast to continue to grow, and their equipment is a huge reason why it sounds great. 60 years ago, Hideo Matsushita established Audio-Technica in a small flat in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Today, you can experience his legacy with affordable audio equipment to help with working from home, content creation, and if you're like me, getting the best out of your vinyl collection. Find out more at audio-technica.com and use promo code LTAS10 if you're in Australia to get a discount and support this show. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's a group in regional Queensland that claims to have no name. Members meet in each other's homes on Wednesdays and Sundays. They don't have any of their beliefs written down, though they do sing hymns from a particular hymn book. A lot of what they follow sounds incredibly similar to a group we've looked into for this podcast, which also claimed to have no name, but was often referred to as the two-by-twos or the truth. Unlike that group, this one doesn't have pairs of workers who travel around and stay with community members. That job was left up to its founder, a man named Robert Barlow. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we get into this episode, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes mentions of child sexual abuse. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. It's incredibly difficult to find out much about Robert Barlow, who was known to his followers as Bob. The religion that Bob set up was so under the radar that there's no way to research it, except by speaking with former members. Much like the 2 by 2s the only way most people would know the organisation existed at all is if they lived nearby a community. Bob's followers, also like the 2 by 2s are conspicuous because of their conservative style of dress and sometimes referred to as the bun people for the way that the women wear their hair, or the shed people for the simple structures they build on their properties to live in and to house their relatives. 
Even with the two-by-twos, there have been books published about them, though they can be pretty difficult to get your hands on, and a few newspaper articles, some by journalist Chris Johnson. I dropped Chris a line and he hasn't come across Bob Barlow before. Even when I was researching Outreach International, which had no media coverage at the time, there were plenty of books written by founder Tony Costas himself that I could struggle my way through. Not so with Bob. What is known about Bob is that he was born Robert James Barlow to David and Emma Barlow on the 20th of June 1900, and married Elizabeth Martha Rudolph a week after she turned 22, when he was 25 years old. A former follower recalled that he had a lot of animosity towards his mother, who was named Emma Bucci before she married his father, and Bob said that he found her too domineering. He told this person, I would not piss on my mother's grave. Bob was a hard worker and a successful farmer in the central Queensland region of Australia. He was extremely efficient and very organised. Even in his 60s and 70s, he was known to be able to do hard labour as well as many young men. Be aware that the Barlow name is common around the region, and there are businesses totally unassociated with Bob Barlow that share it and should not be punished for his alleged crimes. Bob was once part of the 2 by 2s and was excommunicated over a clash in doctrine. Candace Curran was born into Bob Barlow's unnamed religion, and she told me a bit about this clash. It involved something Bob called the blood of sprinkling. So like most forms of Christianity, the two-by-twos believe that Jesus is God's perfect son, you know, our saviour, who died on the cross as an atonement for our sins. Bob, however, preached that Jesus was just a man who crucified his flesh every day to become the perfect being that he was. So this blood of sprinkling message is that Jesus got rid of his own natural human nature, this this bad human nature that we're born with, and he put on the Christ. So he every day he got rid of a little bit, you know, he sprinkled the blood of his own human nature. And then when none of that old man was left, he was just left with the perfect image that was God's son. So that's what Bob preached to the congregation, that we had to obtain perfection just like Jesus did. And this had to be done by the end of our life or we would be going to hell. Bob also believed that there should be no women preachers, while the two-by-twos did have women travelling around in the pairs of workers to different church communities. Two of the Queensland leaders labelled Bob as a troublemaker and excommunicated him. Candace's father wrote down some of his understandings of Bob Barlow's beliefs, and Candace sent these to me. He wrote that, quote, Bob Barlow said that he had the gospel revealed to him by the Spirit of God directly from heaven, not preached to him by any man. Candace's father also noted that Bob was convinced after he left that the two-by-twos would eventually all come to follow him and spread his doctrine around the world, that they would see that he was the one who really had access to the truth. He preached to everybody that he was actually like the Apostle Paul, where God delivered him the gospel himself to himself, to his own person. So he said that no man had ever preached the gospel to him, that God actually delivered the gospel to him himself, and it was the one true right gospel, and that he was just like the Apostle Paul in that way. So he was the only leader. When they mentioned the two-by-twos, who, as we know, also claimed to have no name, 
Bob Barlow and his followers referred to them as the Others. Candace's grandparents were some of Bob Barlow's early followers, and she told me how they originally fell under his sway. My grandparents migrated here after the Second World War and came to work. And when they came to work over here, they met a family who they ended up moving in with because they had nowhere to live and my grandmother was pregnant at the time. And this family, they're very loving, very kind. They opened up their home to my grandparents, but they were actually former members of the two by twos. And they were actually excommunicated from the two by twos because they had been in contact with Eddie Cooney, which was a no-no at this time. You may remember Edward Cooney from our podcast episode about the two by twos. He was one of the original founders of that movement, alongside William Irvine, and he was ousted from the 2x2 two two some years after Irvine himself. Like the 2x2s, two Bob Barlow's group were sometimes referred to as Cooneyites by outsiders, though it's a totally inaccurate moniker. As Candace mentioned, this couple's contact with Edward Cooney was unacceptable in the 2x2s two after his ousting. So they had been thrown out of the 2x2s, two and so my grandparents went and lived with them, but adopted their ways, which was they were having church at home. So once that happened, Bob Barlow actually turned up in Mackay in 1981 because he knew this family that my grandparents had been staying with. And he then came and preached his own gospel to them. The family that my grandparents were living with did not appreciate Bob Barlow doing this. However, he was extraordinarily persuasive. My grandmother says that he had an excellent way with, you know, knowing the verses and he knew the Bible back back and forward and he was able to manipulate them away from this family and into his fold. The old couple who had taken Candace's grandparents in were devastated to lose them alongside much of their own family to Bob, who would already have been in his 80s at this point in time. He said that God had prepared him, like he'd taken all those years, that's why he was quite a lot older, is because it had taken all those years for God to prepare him to go and speak this truth and gospel. Also like the two-by-twos, Bob's followers would tell outsiders that they were Christians and wouldn't encourage too many questions about their form of faith. They don't go by any name because they believe that because Jesus didn't have a name, he did not belong to a denomination, that they are also non-denominational. So, and of course, what's worse than being a worldly person on the outside? Being part of a different denomination, a Catholic a Protestant, even worse. So they don't divulge any information to outsiders. They don't say they belong to a particular faith group. They say that they're a non-denominational Christian. They're uncomfortable with people knowing anything about it, in fact. My mother never felt like she was able to discuss it with her family and she couldn't divulge or disclose to them what the full beliefs were of the church because it was so far removed from normal society that she knew that they would say something to her, that this is, oh, that's wrong, that's a cult. You know, people would tell us that's a cult. But we were silenced by 
the church with they don't know the truth. They're not right. They don't know the truth. When he retired from farming, Bob divided up his assets between his children and took to the road in his van, travelling between the communities of his various followers and preaching to them. So he always preached to have a simple life, which meant you didn't need anything flash or fancy. Nobody had a new car. We certainly never did because we didn't have the means to, but that's what he sort of preached. You just need a simple home and simple things. You should never be on show, you know, and that was another way of keeping you low and down. The blood of sprinkling that we mentioned earlier was a concept that Bob Barlow came up with himself, and Candace wrote me a little more to explain how it worked. Quote, It is a metaphor for getting rid of your own human nature until there is nothing left, day by day, one blood sprinkle at a time. Every day our duty was to try and bleed your own human nature away, so we could have the nature of Christ himself. This was done by denying yourself any pleasures or lusts of the flesh. Anything that didn't fall into Bob's guidelines of self-isolation and simple farm life was considered a lust of the flesh, end quote. Bob also talked about the two crosses. There was Calvary's cross, or the Roman cross, which Jesus was crucified on, and the daily cross, which Bob's followers should be looking to attain every single day through pricking their conscience, to see where they had strayed from Christ-like perfection and through sprinkling the blood of their human nature. In fact, there were two bloods as well as two crosses in Bob's teachings. Alongside the blood of sprinkling was the blood of Calvary, so the daily cleansing of sin and the final forgiving of sin. Candace's grandfather decided not long afterwards that the group wasn't for him, but her grandmother remained committed, and their three children, including Candace's father, became committed as well. As part of the commitment, they distanced themselves from this loving family who had welcomed them into their home. I think my dad has regrets because he sort of shunned, you know, these people that he called grandma and granddad because they were his adopted grandparents here because he had none in Australia. And he sort of shunned them and had to reconcile with them at a late age, you know, on their deathbed. Bob Barlow also talked the couple's own children into following him and believing that their parents were wrong. Candace's father was in his early 20s at this time, and I asked her what she understood had appealed to him about Bob Barlow's teachings. Well, he just said that Bob was very well-versed and he was very persuasive and he wouldn't take no for an answer and he could talk his point, whereas, you know, the grandfather that we talk about from the other family, he was more of a simple man, you know, kind-hearted, didn't know the Bible as well as Bob Barlow, and Bob was very, very strong and persuasive in his points. Candace told me that when she was involved, there were probably around two to three hundred followers of Bob Barlow based in central and east Queensland. Now she thinks there are more like four to five hundred, but not because of successful recruiting. Rather, the growth is from members being born into the group. I asked Candace about her own impressions of Bob Barlow. Look, I was 10 years old when Bob Barlow died, so I remember him staying with us because he had a, a van 
that he used to drive around and he would go from house to house, just like with the two-by-twos where they would have preachers that would go from house to house. Bob Barlow did it on his own in a van. I was young, so I was six or seven, but for me he was just, he was a tall man, you know, with a tall stature, grey hair, and he was always grumpy. He never smiled. He seemed very authoritative and I just recall, you know, sitting at the dinner table with him and him rousing on my brother and I for talking at the dinner table, you know, being six or seven and five and telling my parents that children are seen and not heard. Um, So I never, ever had a good feeling from him, which always made me scared of him. So I try to avoid him when he ever came. In terms of expectations for women, Bob was quite restrictive. So Bob actually took with him all of the rules and the laws from the two by twos. So for women, there was no makeup, no jewellery, no hair colouring. It was conservative clothing, which had to cover the shoulders, no low neck, down past the knee, always a skirt. There were no pants ever to be worn to any of the meetings on a Wednesday or Sunday. You were allowed to wear pants if you were out doing farm work or things like that, but for the most part it was dresses and skirts. Um, The women were to be housewives, cook, clean, and have as many children as they can. Women weren't to work, as Bob said they were to be keepers of the home. They were to be subservient to their husbands, who were considered the head of the household. Some were discouraged from getting a driver's licence, so had to rely on their husbands to drive them around. Don't forget that these are not areas with decent public transport. Bob's own wife was never permitted to get a driving licence. There was no alcohol, and followers were told that it was best if they lived on a farm. So the best life, or the the only true way that you should be living is a farm life. You needed to be isolated so that you would not be persuaded by anybody of the outside world into their worldly ways. For Candace's family, this wasn't possible. I guess for those people that were fortunate enough to be able to purchase a farm, that was great. But for my family, they could not afford to buy a farm. So we did, started living out of town, but then for financial reasons, we moved into town and uh, that was definitely gossiped about. In his early 30s, Candace's father had an accident at work and ruptured two discs in his back. He was home on the disability pension and her mother was a homemaker, as was expected of women, so their income wasn't much. You might think this tight-knit community of godly people would rally around and support the family in their time of need, but that's not quite what happened. He had this belief that we were actually, because we were the one true way, the only truth, that we were in fact above the realms of physics and the law. So he did preach that we would never, ever get a sickness or a disease because we were the elect few. And it wasn't a few months later that my father had his back accident and was unable to work. So the criticism that came from that was that he was a sinner and he had a disease of Egypt and that he had done something 
terribly, terribly wrong in his life and this was God punishing him. So not only did he have his back ailment, he also had judgment from the entire church on him to the point where I think my grandmother was so desperate with the with the situation and how my dad was and the fact that he couldn't walk and couldn't work that she wrote a letter to Bob Barlow and asked him to please bring some of the elders up from the church and anoint him with oil and please pray for him because that is one of the verses in the Bible. And Bob Barlow wrote a letter back and said, what sort of oil would you like me to bring? Canola, olive, extra virgin, basically mocked her for wanting him to come and pray for her son. I thought this teaching, that none of Bob Barlow's hundreds of followers would ever get ill as the elect few, must have been pretty difficult to maintain. Candace explained a little more of what Bob said about this. You know, he said that God had provided a wheel of protection over us, that there'll be no disabilities or physical ailments or sickness or cancer. Another former member told me that their family feared the wheel of protection might be removed if they disobeyed Bob's word, and that they could be smote with the diseases of Egypt. I couldn't imagine that Candace's father would have been the only follower to ever become unwell. Well, he was actually the first one. So there was a few other people that suffered after that. He said nobody would get cancer. Then his youngest daughter actually got cancer and passed away from it. I mean, she was she was older, but she still died from cancer. There were a couple of children within the church that actually died from freak accidents. And those sort of subjects were not really, they were sort of brushed under the carpet when, you know, talking about Bob's beliefs. It was just that, you know, this was the right time. They were already perfect and they were going to heaven because they were children. It took Candace's father nine months just to learn to walk again, and he fell into a pretty dark place, what with the injury and blaming himself for the injury, wondering what wicked thing he had done to bring it upon himself, and also being expected to be the breadwinner for the family and unable to earn a living. At one point he had filled a prescription for antidepressants, but he threw them away after six months because he felt so guilty about taking them. The general attitude of Bob Barlow was that you want to stay away from the worldly people in the medical system unless you have no other choice, and that you should be able to rely on your faith to heal. His followers were allowed to get medical care for things like giving birth, but particularly for mental health issues, your faith in God should be enough. Candace's mother's mental health suffered at this point with their home situation too. She's only 27 at the time, and she's got a couple of little kids, and She never thought that, you know, she would have, you know, a disabled husband. So for her, she was really depressed as well. And then she didn't sleep. So I think at her worst, she almost didn't sleep for three months, like maybe one hour a night Mm. to the point where she was suicidal. And the guilt of going in and getting medication, she never could never bring herself to do. So she was not in a good, good place either. Candace's mother didn't even get sleeping pills to help her through the night. It was an incredibly difficult time in the life of the young family. 
So when an opportunity came up for Candace's father to learn to fix televisions and video players, he jumped at the chance. It was a job where he could either stand up or sit down, so it wasn't too impactful on his back, and he did learn how to fix them. But because we weren't allowed TVs in the church, we he was gossiped about for that as well and quite ostracised for, you know, making the wrong choice in the wrong profession. Although Candace's father was unusual in the type of work that he was doing, and the family and that they were living in town instead of on a property, any intermingling with outsiders was still limited to passing contact at work or at school. We did not have outside friends. We only interacted with the church group themselves. And I suppose when you're isolated on a farm, like the way that they were, you don't have a chance to interact with anybody else. So for us growing up, no school sports, no TV, no radio. We're encouraged never to put a CD player in our car. If it didn't come with one, no home stereo systems, nothing like that. No media, really. In terms of written materials, magazines were out. I guess having a newspaper was okay, but you had it for a purpose, like you were checking the ads to see if there was a tractor, that sort of thing. So if you did have it, there was an excuse for it. Children were attending regular schools, unless their farm was too isolated to do so, but only up to a point. They were not allowed to attend overnight school camps, excursions off campus, sporting events, or any religious education programs. Once the children got to grade nine, they were removed from school, so weren't allowed to go past grade nine. So the girls were taken out to go and work at the house or on the farm because there might have been other younger children that the mother needed help with, and the boys were taken out of school purely to work on the farm. So there's nobody with even a senior education in high school, let alone a tertiary education. When Candace went to university later on, she had some revelations about this. The one thing that I really took away from university was the fact that they made you critically think because that's something that you were never able to do in the church, to have that, you know, ability to critically think and question things and, hang on, do I believe that? I don't know. Let's, you know, let's investigate that. That is something that Bob really controlled everyone on. And if you did have a question, he was more than happy to have an argument with you. I know one of the men in the church did have an argument with him, which ended up in a screaming match one day, and that man was told to never come back. So, yeah, that's what you were faced with if you didn't agree with what he had to say. I asked Candace about the group's attitudes towards discipline. Like I said before, Bob wanted children to be seen and not heard. And, of course, just like a lot of other sects that I've heard, they went by the phrase, spare the rod and spoil the child. So growing up, we were always smacked for anything that we did wrong. I mean, it could be a hand, a wooden spoon, a belt. My parents were, it was almost an expectation that we were publicly punished so that the other people in the church could see that their children were being disciplined properly. And this happened from a young age. And I just, I recall one of the mothers coming to one of the meetings on the Sunday with a 30 centimetre leather strap and she was smacking her three-year-old son for moving 
and then would smack him again and tell him to stop crying. It was punishment for children was definitely tough. Bobalo's followers met in local groups at each other's houses on Sundays and Wednesdays. The home church setup reminded me of Outreach International. If your family was hosting the meeting, you'd also have all of the work to do prior to the gathering, in terms of cleaning the house and preparation of meals and such. So you just turned up to somebody's home and sat in their lounge room in a circle on chairs with your Bible and your hymn book. And yes, it was singing and praying and preaching. Candace remembers green plastic chairs, like those you might buy from Bunnings, placed in a living room. Children could sit on the floor, but after they turned nine, they were expected to sit on the chairs and follow the proceedings along with the adults. After a hymn was sung, members would kneel down and face the back of their chair for a prayer. Then you'd get up, you'd sing another song, another hymn, and then it was time the floor was opened up and anybody could speak. And it was usually about the subject or something that had been on your conscience that week, an event that had happened, or you felt like you were being selfish and God really pricked your conscience about how much of an awful selfish person you were, and you had to cry about that. These speeches could last 20 or 30 minutes each, so they took a long time, throughout which any children were expected to remain quiet. Women were allowed to speak, but it was more often men doing the talking. Then it would be time for bread and wine and a closing hymn. The bread and wine were known as the emblems and represented the daily cross and the daily blood of Bob's teachings. Candace's father wrote in his notes, quote, The bread signifies our body broken, little by little, day by day, denying self-will and our willingness to be broken. The wine represents the old life being poured out, little by little, day by day, being the blood of sprinkling. The Sunday meeting started at 10.30am, the Wednesday meeting at 7.30pm, and these were exact times. The Sunday meetings ran for about three hours, and the Wednesday meetings were a bit shorter and didn't include the emblems. If Bob himself was around, there may be a special gospel meeting organised for a Sunday afternoon, and in the early days members were expected to invite outsiders in to hear the true gospel from the man himself, though it could be difficult to figure out who to invite. Candace told me a bit more about the time commitments expected from members. So Sunday would go for two or three hours, depending on who was speaking at the time. And then afterwards, we would bring a communal lunch and everybody would eat together. Us children would have a play together and then you would go home in the afternoon, say five or six o'clock. So Sunday was an all-day commitment. Wednesday night was a few hours, but with the meetings, so the way that it was structured is that one person from the church group would have a subject each week. It may be a verse, it may be a sentence, but this was what was expected to be studied for the week. They would study the subject and then on a Wednesday night they would talk about it. On a Sunday, that's what was talked about. If you were sort of an elder in the church, you're expected to write your notes. So that's what they called them, the notes. You're expected to write your notes on the subject. And then those notes were copied and faxed through to every single member of the church by Sunday so that they could have their notes read out. You know, and 
this is just only the tangible time that I'm talking about. This is not the occupancy that the, the teachings took up in your mind. You know, they were all consuming because you felt very guilty all the time. So it really was a full-time thing. Bob also preached that you should be praying on your knees beside your bed every morning, usually like five or six o'clock in the morning. And if you awoke any time after midnight, that you should get out on your knees and start praying. Another former member describes the time commitments and expectations to me like this, quote, During the week, members were expected to start each day with an hour of morning prayers, pray continually throughout the day, study the weekly subject and write letters to the person who had chosen the subject. The church members were continually in contact throughout the week, and gossip and talking about each other was an important part of our daily routine. Meals were always scheduled at set times each day, with a formal sit-down format. Giving thanks started every meal and family discussion included talk about what had been shared or talked about in the daily phone conversations with other church members. End quote. In terms of ever missing any meetings, Candace told me a story about one woman who tried to take some time out. You know, I know that there was a poor woman who lost her child and she took a break from the church and she received letters from the elders telling her that she needed to get back to church because if she didn't, she was going to hell and she'd never see a child again. So she had to deal with that on top of grieving for losing a child. Candace's mother had joined the church when she got together with Candace's father, which sounds like a much rarer occurrence these days, but was more common at the time. Candace told me a little about why it appealed to her mum. I mean, her dad was present, but not present, if that makes sense. So she never had a really great relationship with her father. And I think that's what really drew her into this, is that, that it was such a tight-knit community. All the families were together. They did love each other. They did everything together. And I guess she saw, you know, once you're in, you're in. So she felt accepted and felt like she belonged as part of something, you know. So that is what drew her in. And then when the rules came, it really got hard for her. One thing that differed from the two-by-twos was the lack of conventions, where everyone gathered together at a certain time of the year. I wondered whether members were able to travel to different places for holidays, and Candace told me that you were expected just to visit other church members around the communities in Queensland if you wanted to have some time away from home. But on one occasion, her parents decided to go on a trip to Tasmania. This was pretty unheard of. At that particular time, one of the church members rang my parents and said, I have a really bad feeling that your plane is going to crash and that you're going to die on your holiday to Tasmania. And my dad wanted to cancel the holiday. And my mum actually refused at the time to cancel the holiday. She said she spent the whole trip in fear. She was praying on the plane. She was almost sick. She was worried if they were going to die in the car driving around Tasmania, worried that they were going to die on the plane on the way home. But they did obviously make it back unscathed, but that's the kind of fear and guilt that they would put on you if you were doing something outside of the realms of their rules.
asked Candice whether she thought that there was anything dangerous about the way that the group operated. I think the danger of it is the isolation because nobody is allowed to seek any sort of help from the outside world. You know, you're discouraged from seeking medical help because it shows a lack of faith. They also make out that, you know, everybody else in the world is is poison except for the people inside the church and that the outside world are going to try and indoctrinate you against the church, which is the one true right way. So involving yourself with those people and getting into anything that they're involved in could potentially put your salvation at risk. So yeah, I guess you, your autonomy is taken away in every sense of the word. You you can't make any of those decisions for yourselves. And I think, you know, just the danger also is that they he kept everybody uneducated and uninformed. So because there was no media and then education stopped at an early age, nobody really got a chance to ever critically think about anything. They just had to follow the rules. And I feel like that's, you know, that's what he's done. Just other things like no insurance, not allowed to have insurance, no house insurance, contents insurance, car insurance, because you're protected by God through that. If somebody's property was damaged through an accident, unlike when Candace's father injured his back, community members were expected to pitch in and help fix things up. As Candace mentioned earlier, she was about 10 years old when Bob Barlow died, which was on the 21st of April 1994. He was two months shy of his 94th birthday. Since his death, Bob's church has been leaderless. So what he actually had said was that one of his sons was going to take over as the leader of the church. And after he passed away, nobody has stepped up. So there is currently no leader. They are running off the letters and the notes of Bob Barlow's teachings. I found this quite astounding. And I asked Candace if she had any idea of why none of his sons had taken on the role. Bob was also the only person qualified to baptise members which was done in water when young people made their choice to follow the truth. And since his passing, there have been no baptisms. These days I'm told that young members inform an elder when they have made their choice and are then added to the subject list so that they can fully participate in the notes each week. Candace's theory was that Bob's teachings and his doctrine put all of his followers, including his sons, in a frame of mind that made it very difficult for them to consider themselves worthy of the job. He actually had everybody in a place of guilt and in a low way of thinking about themselves. So I personally feel that nobody stepped up because they didn't feel that they were good enough and they weren't God's anointed like what Bob claimed that he was. Here I want to go back to the blood of sprinkling doctrine that Candace mentioned earlier. This was the idea that you had to work every day in order to attain perfection like Jesus had. This teaching basically stripped us of being the person that we are or have the personality that we do. Uh, we needed to rid ourselves of ourself and live obediently. And in this case, the obedience was to Bob rather than to God and his rules. If, if any of his um, teachings were questioned, members were put into their place and told that they didn't have the true spirit. So basically our daily home life had to be to get rid of our really bad human nature, rid of it, so that we could just be 
filled with the Christ-like nature. So every day you were thinking, have I been too selfish? Have I been too boastful? Was, did I do something that was too prideful? You know, that the guilt was all consuming. So any interests that you had, like music or say you liked drag car racing or anything like that, it was an absolute no-no because it was an outside influence. You were just to focus on your own human nature and get rid of it every day so that by the time you died, you were perfect. I just perfection is unattainable. So when you're trying to attain to something that's unattainable, you're always going to be chasing your tail. You're never, there's never going to be a resolution. You're never going to feel peace. You're never going to feel calm or happy within yourself. You're just, it is a constant battle of inner turmoil, which, yeah, is all-consuming. Bob Barlow gave his followers a deadline to work towards as well. He made claims that the world was going to end in the year 2000, give or take 10 years. So we had better keep trying to be the best person that we could and get rid of this human nature so that, yeah, we weren't going to be doomed to hell when that time came. I wondered if it was also the fear and the guilt embedded in the teachings that made hundreds of followers stick around even with two decades passing since the year 2000 and Bob Barlow no longer there to be God's voice on earth for them. Absolutely. That's what I think it is. Yeah. It's that fear and that guilt. And they just revert back to his teachings and his notes to stay inside it. Like so many of us, Candace went through a rebellious phase at the age of 16. I did not want to be in it anymore. I didn't want to be a part of it. So I kind of left home like because I, yes, I left school. So I, I didn't go past grade 10 and I left school and I went to work, but I made good friends with a girl that I worked with at McDonald's and I'm still friends with her now, actually. So I became sort of socially involved with her when I didn't want to go home. But I guess at some point, you know, you're 16, you have to go home. So I I did go home. I guess I kind of kept myself in it and out of it, if that makes sense. I turned up to every Wednesday and Sunday and did all the things that I was supposed to in front of them. But I also enjoyed having my other group of friends But what really kept me there was the guilt. So I guess by the time I was, you know, in my early 20s and I'm trying to navigate my life through that, I just was really lost and, you know, I guess mum and dad were always like, oh, you should really come back to church. That's what you really need to do is come back to church. So I kind of had this wrestle with my relationship with the church, you know, being in but being out but totally guilty the whole time. You know, if I had a sip of alcohol or anything like that, I would just, the guilt, I would feel like I had to go to church on the Sunday to rid me of the feeling, which I just couldn't get rid of. And I did have a relationship 
with a boy inside the church for three years, 18, 19, 20, 21, and it didn't work out. And I, it was no fault of either of us. It just didn't work out. And I particularly found it hard to negotiate that because I, all these thoughts in my head were, you have to marry someone in the church. If you don't marry someone in the church and you have children, your children are going to go to hell. And how are you ever going to meet somebody and then try and tell them about this sect and that they have to turn up to someone's lounge room every Wednesday and Sunday? That, you know, who is going to want to do that? Nobody that I met at the, you know, down at a party or at the pub was ever going to think that that was remotely normal. So it was really hard for me to try and get through those years without being back in it, I guess. Yeah, because that was my security. My parents and that church were the things that were going to make me not feel guilty and not be a bad person. Members were expected to marry young, and for women that meant around 18 to 20 years of age. I asked Candace about the size of the dating pool if you wanted to find a partner within the church itself. Extraordinarily small. The dating pool is very small. It You can find somebody outside of the church, but they must agree to be to come into the church. Otherwise, they're not, they're not the right one for you. So there were a few women who had relationships with men who they actually brought to the church and because they didn't want to come to the church with them, you know, they were forced to break up with them. So it's gotten quite toxic to the point where the people inside the church are actually marrying within families. Yeah, there's cousins marrying cousins and things like that because there's not a big pool to choose from. Like the two-by-twos, Bob Barlow's church seemed to be very serious. Candace told me that the Sunday meetings felt like a funeral every week. It sounded like there wasn't a lot of joy. Candace shared one slight deviation from the dreariness. So they do have like large 18th or 21st birthdays, all dry, of course, but everybody comes together, has a chat. They have a big bonfire. Look, a lot of the kids do learn to play a musical instrument, like a guitar or a piano. They were sort of the only real two because they provided their own entertainment. So they would sit around the campfire and sing their own songs. But when I talk about songs, I mean there were things you could listen to and couldn't listen to, like John Denver, okay. Celine Dion, all right. Anything that was top of the pops, absolutely not. And... You know, if you're going to go and throw in like Metallica or Pearl Jam, straight to hell. The last one of these that Candace remembers attending involved a father going around and telling everyone that she didn't have the true spirit because she had worn a ring. Apart from covering Bob Barlow's general expenses, there was no particular expectation on giving monetarily to the church. So there was no tithing. The money that you made was your own. But Bob did expect that if he stayed with you, that you feed him, 
that he would plug his van into your electricity and that you're expected to pay for his registration tyres or any other maintenance to his van. Anything that he really needed was one of the expectations that he had that you would pay for. Apart from that, no. In all of my experience researching cults over the last five seasons of Let's Talk About Sects and for my book, I found that financial exploitation is one of the most common benefits that leaders of high-demand groups like to get out of their followers. So I'm sometimes surprised when this doesn't seem to be the case. Which begs the question, was Bob Barlow getting anything else out of his followers, aside from the feeling of adulation and the recognition of his position that he was God's mouthpiece on earth? When Candace was around 24 or 25, she found out about something that shocked her to her core. I received a phone call from my friend who was a member of the church and had gotten out. And she had asked me if I had heard that there had been multiple women who had made accusations of mistreatment against Bob. And I had not heard this. And when she told me, I got off the phone and I rang my parents straight away and asked them about it. And they said to me that they had found out a couple of months prior and that they were trying to work through it and that they hadn't told us yet, but they were going to tell us. So when I found that out, I that was it. Everything came crashing down for me. I, I couldn't be part of it anymore. I asked Candace how her parents had become aware of the allegations in the months prior to this phone call. They were doing their Wednesday night meeting and one of the ladies from another town had come up. She was up in, you know, in our town doing her tax or something like that. And she came to the Wednesday night meeting and she told my parents and the other members there that she'd heard a story. There was a whistleblower who had said a story that Bob Barlow had uh, mistreated her as a child. And, and then following that, there were other women that came out and said, like concurred with the story that they had also been mistreated by him. So, yeah, that's how they found out. Rather than speaking with their children straight away about what they'd heard, Candace's parents were taking the time to go directly to the sources of the information. They were talking to the people, you know, the, the women that were affected. They were talking to their parents and trying to wrap their head around it because they had never, ever heard of it before. So when it did come out, we later found out that some of the elders in the church already knew of this misconduct and had put some things into place to keep their daughters away from Bob Barlow, but they decided to brush it under the carpet. They did not expose it to anybody. So they had known for years and didn't tell anyone. I guess they accepted it as a sin and not a crime that should be punished. All of these details were coming out 15 years after Bob had died. While for Candace and her family, this was information that discredited Bob Barlow as the man of God that he had claimed to be and caused them to feel that they had no other option than to distance themselves from his teachings. For others, that wasn't the case. Some of them have totally rejected it. Some of them have just said, well, even if he did do that, he was still God's anointed and God's chosen. 
just because he did that doesn't mean that he wasn't the chosen anointed person to preach the right and true gospel. In the wake of eight separate allegations that Candace knows about personally, this seemed like a pretty incredible position to take to me. And as we see often in coercive groups, some real cognitive dissonance. Candace gave me an example of how one member explained her position when she wrote a letter in response to Candace reaching out to her. She paraphrased the response for me. I do not believe that you understand any of the gospel preached unto us, or you would not reject it as you appear to. Remember that you were actually too young to have heard it from Bob himself. I pray that your eyes are enlightened and that your heart will open to truly desire God's truth and not be content with what satisfies your own mind. This person referred to a Bible story about King David in a way that I think really demonstrates how these groups consider themselves outside of the law and what can be dangerous about them to their communities. She wrote, Consider David and what he did in the matter of Uriah. Send a man to be slain in battle so he could take his wife. Not what you would think a great man of God would do, a sin worthy of death by the law. But God is the judge and when David repented, God forgave him, but there were consequences. So God is the only judge of all repentance, and who are we? We know nothing, and our ways are not God's ways, neither his ways ours. King David sent a man out into battle to be slain because he wanted to take his wife, which happened, and God was displeased with this and there was a punishment. However, God still loved him. So basically she's telling me that just because he did something that wasn't God, not something that you would think a godly person would do, who are we to judge him? There may be punishment for him, but as far as him She said, the word I received was delivered by the Lord's anointed. In this story, prior to sending Uriah to his death, King David had summoned his wife Bathsheba to his chambers and lay with her, impregnating her. Sending Uriah to his death was to cover up for his misdeeds. Some interpretations of the Bible understand this as rape, and it can be little less than an extreme power imbalance with Bathsheba unable to refuse. An exploration of this passage at Theology of Work says, quote, The prophet Nathan indicts David by telling a parable in which a rich man, representing David, takes a precious sheep, Bathsheba, from a poor man, Uriah. End quote. On hearing Nathan's parable, David says, The man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan responds, You are the man. In this story, King David repented in his lifetime and was punished by God for his sins. Bob Barlow, who had multiple allegations against him that appear to have been known by many for years, was never held accountable for his misdeeds and appeared to repeat them rather than to repent for them. There's a real contradiction with Bob's own teachings as well. In some notes about the teachings, Candace's father wrote under the heading, The Judgments from God, quote, Our present sins are judged, and we, in a humble and contrite condition, repent from all iniquity. Our secret faults are exposed to be put on our daily cross and crucified. God judges us in mercy, and we must be judged here and now while living on the earth. Every trait must be corrected and crucified. The old man of sin must be destroyed before the grave, or else we face judgment with the wrath of God after the grave. Of course, you only need to look at the countless other examples of not holding perpetrators to account in church groups and other institutional environments 
to consider what the approach of turning a blind eye may have encouraged in the general culture of Bob Barlow's community. For me particularly, there was a man who did come to the church every week and would openly make me feel uncomfortable through the things that he would say or where he would put his hand when he would try and give me a hug. And it was very noticeable. My mother asked my father to say something to him and he didn't. He said, just stay away, just keep the peace. And I said, I do not go near him, Dad. Oh, yes, I know that. You know, it came to the point where another woman in the church actually had to get her husband to ask this man to stay seated and not come near her kids. So, you know, we all knew what he was like and that wasn't Bob, that was somebody else. So this is what I mean, that kind of behaviour, it just festers in that situation because it's never addressed. Candace's father later apologised to her for this. I'm in touch with a former follower who claims to have been abused by Bob Barlow from the age of eight, and I believe her. She told her parents when she was 12, after Bob's death, that Grandad Barlow had been molesting her. She says that it happened in his van, when he was staying on their property, where her job was to go out and fetch him for meals. She said of her mother and father's response to the news, My parents told me that they didn't want to undermine the faith of others by telling other people in the church, and that I should also not speak out so as not to be a hindrance to the belief of other members. For Candace herself, when the allegations against Bob Barlow came out, there was a very different feeling than wanting to figure out how she could continue to follow his teachings. For me, I felt relief. It was almost like this was the ticket to know that these doubts and this feeling that I'd had my whole life that I was, you know, because I was so embarrassed by it as a child that I just thought, oh, that's it, I don't have to uphold any of this anymore. I don't have to go there. I don't have to listen to any of their rules. I can do whatever the hell I want. And it was it was a relief that to know that I didn't have to feel guilty about anything that I did. There were some other families who did leave, along with Candace's family, after the revelations, including one of Bob Barlow's own sons. But as Candace mentioned earlier, some 28 years after Bob's death, and 13 years after this first came out, there are still hundreds of people following his teachings. For those who left, they were leaving their entire community behind. We were, I guess, shunned and cast out and were not really spoken to again. I mean, if we saw them in the street, they would say hello. But if they ever came to town, you know, they would never call in. They would never seek seek you out to have a relationship with you anymore because you were not are not part of them. And so that's what Bob always preached. If somebody comes to the fold and leaves, that they were never part of us anyway. So you are to reject them. Already having some friends outside of the church, Candace had a bit of an easier time of this. 
But for my parents and particularly my grandmother, you know, I watched her weep like the grief and loss, like somebody had died because these people wouldn't contact her again. And, you know, for somebody who's migrated here from Germany and these people are your family, that is the kind of loss she suffered. And she was old when this happened. She was 75, heading towards 80 when this happened. And I think for my parents it was really hard too because the friends that they thought they had also rejected them. And they've had to learn, and I think that was probably one of the most difficult things for all of us, is to learn to have a new social group of friends and how to, yeah, you know, what that looks like, interacting with other people and just little things that seem so ridiculous. But for me, growing up, I, things like, I had no idea who Michael Jackson was. I couldn't relate to any of the TV shows that the kids were watching. Or, you know, when we were growing up, people would say, oh, did you watch Friends last night? And I wouldn't be able to engage in those kind of social conversations because I had no idea because we didn't have a TV. And I think for my mum and my dad, if anybody would bring up in conversation about popular culture and things like that, never. They they couldn't engage because they didn't know what some of that stuff was, you know. Though Candace had a sense of relief and a social network to fall back on, there were, of course, many things she also needed to work through with her family. For my family, particularly because we came out, my parents acknowledged that it was wrong and that they didn't want to be a part of it anymore. And in that was so much because we then had to forgive them or, you know, go through all those stages of being angry and then having to try and forgive them. Because for my mum, the guilt that she carried about spending 30 years of her life and raising us the way that she didn't want to raise us. She thought that she was going to give us a better life than what she had and I think she feels like she didn't do that and she feels like she was robbed of being the mother that she wanted to be, particularly with the punishment and the rules and the guidelines about what we were allowed to and not allowed to do. So, you know, we had to go through all that and and forgive her. I think my dad closed up a lot. That's just the way he deals with things. He doesn't talk about them as much, but he has said sorry. And we've also had to forgive him for that. I think particularly for my younger brother, he was extraordinarily good at sport. I mean, awesome. He got chosen to go to Sydney to play soccer on one of the teams and he was forbidden to go. And I think that really played a strong part in going through the psychological process of him and his job and what he does because he went to university but he hated what he did. And I think, truth be told, he really wanted to pursue sports because he just loves it and he just he was robbed of the opportunity and I think it, it really plagues him. And it really has plagued my mother as well. So there were all those things to get through. And, you know, it's taken, like it's been 13 years now since we've found out, and it's taken every single bit of that time to try and and move forward, you know, because every day there'll be a new something that you, 
you have to face or something will happen that will trigger you back to your childhood or, yeah, or particularly mum trigger her back to the way that she was a parent. So it takes, it's, yeah, it's taken a lot of energy. But as a family, I think that we've done a really good job at talking it out and, you know, having those arguments with each other, but then saying sorry and reconciling just like how it should be. Candace is a teacher today, and it wasn't an easy road for her to get there. Having been made to leave school after year 10, she had to take a bridging course, known as a STEPS or Skills for Tertiary Education Preparatory Studies course, to get there. I was really angry that I was uneducated, and then when I met my husband, he's actually an engineer, and I became involved with his group of friends And I was just amazed that all these people were so educated. You know, they were so down to earth. They were out camping and fishing and having great times, but they were educated. And I just thought I had always felt like I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to go when I was 18, but I didn't. And he just said to me, if that's what you want to do, then you should do it. So I was already married. I already had a baby and I decided to start uni. And it took me nine grueling, long years to finish that degree. Two babies I went through and, yeah, I did it. And I was just super proud of myself that I was able to do something that was never, ever going to be an option for me had I stayed in that cult. I asked Candice if she had any advice for people who may be in a group like this. I think, you know, you really need to listen to your own instincts and that that gut feeling and your own intuition that you have deep down inside and not be afraid to question what's going on around you. Being aware of your surroundings and, and if you're feeling that doubt or that gut feeling that something's not right, then you probably are right and you need to follow that. That's your own conviction within yourself. That's your survival mode telling you that, hey, something's wrong here and it, you should question it and you should go with it. So many people I speak with felt doubts for such a long time when they were in their high demand group, but it can be so difficult to really engage with them. It can be much easier to push them down and ignore them especially when the teachings of a group work to convince you that such doubts are of the devil or that they're a personal fault. And the enormity of what it would mean to consider that you may have been wrong for so many years, sometimes your entire life, can be too much to face. And I'm wondering if that's why some of the church members aren't coming out, because it's easier for them to stay in it because the thought of it being wrong and coming out is going to be too astronomical to deal with both physically and mentally, that it's easier to stick with the devil you know, pun intended. In terms of the future of the group, I wondered whether the next generation, who were born into Bob Barlow's church, but are so far removed from ever being able to hear from the man himself, and who are facing a limited number of options when it comes to having families of their own, whether they might be more likely to reject his teachings. 
I think the next generations that are coming through, they are slowly dwindling off. Like I know that there's a lot of the young people in their early 20s, late teenagers who are deciding not to go anymore. But, you know, there's consequences for them with that. They will be ostracised by their parents. So there definitely are consequences, but I can see that there are people that are moving away from it. A former follower tells me that the younger generations are being taught that Bob Barlow was an apostle sent by God with the gospel of truth, and that their church group originated from the first church as described in Acts 2, 42-47. I asked Candice for her impression of how much Bob Barlow really believed in what he was teaching, and how much of it was about power and control. I think that Bob, I think he believed his own lies of being God's own anointed, which, you know, gives him a narcissistic personality, really. But I think the congregation did buy into his teachings wholeheartedly. But for Bob, I believe that it served him and what he wanted. He became the one true source of doctrine, you know, the one powerful figure. And he had power, he, you know, lauded that power over everybody. So he so he could, you know, dictate his terms and beliefs on everyone. Yeah. And and those those terms and those beliefs have extended beyond his grave. Candace has set up an email address for any members or former members who would like to get in touch with her after listening to this podcast episode. I'll mention it in the credits and it's also linked in the show notes. For Candace, there will always be some ongoing impacts of having grown up under this belief system. I'm going to leave you with these final words from Candace Curran today. Unbelievably, guilt is one of the things that I suffer with the most, you know, as an adult, even being out of it, because it's just so ingrained in you that it's really hard to rid yourself of feeling guilty over everything, even just the process of like coming to do this podcast, just feeling guilty over that, you know, oh, should I be saying this? Should I be doing this? It's, yeah, it's been a process. But, you know, I just think it's it's not just for me. It's for those women out there who are too afraid to speak. Yeah. can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon or Acast Plus, linked in the show notes, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. You can also listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was researched and written by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Matt Brazel for editing. A very special thanks to Candace Curran for sharing her story with me. If you're a former member who would like to get in touch with Candace, you can contact her at survivingthetruth@outlook.com.au. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 5 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, use promo code LTAS10 at audio-technica.com on their Australian store to get a discount and support this show. Their range of headphones and turntables is quite ridiculous, and don't get me started on their mics. Audio-Technica, celebrating 60 years of listening. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to cult information and family support if you're in Australia via cifs.org.au, and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode.